Hello, and welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And uh, David, I understand uh, we have a returning visitor with us today, uh, Dr. Melvin Belsky. Thanks, Mel, for coming back. For those of you, we've had two prior podcasts with him. He's a rehabilitation doctor who spent many years creating rehab programs in hospitals. He eventually ended up as the medical director of Safeway. And this made some remarkable inroads into systems approach to chronic pain, preventing disability, keeping, keeping people back to work. And he saved Safeway a lot of money, which is one of the goals. But more importantly, he really saved a lot of human suffering. We've had two conversations with him about the role of what's called the ACE scores, Adverse Childhood Experiences on Patients' Well-Being and Workforce Outcome. And just to paraphrase for 30 seconds here, Adverse Childhood Experiences are a list of behaviors that children are exposed to that are unpleasant. Sexual, physical, emotional abuse, parent in jail, parent on drugs, parent with mental health issues. And there's a score from zero to 10 and only 30% of Americans have an A score of zero, and over a third have an A score of three or more. If the score is three or more, there's a higher chance of suicide, depression, anxiety, heart disease, early death. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. It also affects workplace performance, and it's also a factor in what Dr. Belsky talked about, delayed recovery from a relatively minor injury. So, Mel, I'd like to welcome you back to the show, and I really appreciate you uh, spending time with us. Well, thank you, David. I'm um, pleased to be here. The uh, the part of the topic we'd like to talk about today, which I'm extremely interested in myself, a lot from my own educational benefit, is that, now, how long were you the medical director of Safeway? Uh, well, I, a, a total of 15 years. Again, medical director of risk management. Okay. Uh, uh, but Safeway was purchased by Albertsons about three or four years before I actually left uh, and retired. Okay. So I, I worked for Safeway mostly and then for Albertsons, which, which owns Safeway. And, you know. The problem I think Mel and I have with medicine right now, there's an extremely disturbing trend, is where patients, including injured workers, are looked at sort of as targets, or what's the better word, Mel? I mean, they're, they're basically the fuel for the fire. Opportunities. <laughs> I mean, it, dep- it depends on, you know, well, anyway. these, these folks, they, they tend, uh, now, in, a, in California, we have a medical provider network system where employers and insurers can apply a modicum of control over the provision of medical services. Outside of California, it's pretty much the Wild West. Right. And and as a consequence, an unscrupulous doctor or an ignorant doctor or both um, can milk the patient cow without a whole lot of supervision or resistance. So right. these people, these are the, the folks that suffer adverse childhood experience, on the one hand, they think often that they deserve, because of their terrible childhoods, deserve the best, deserve whatever they 
are told they need, um, etc. And not then they don't understand that that getting more treatment, more procedures, more surgery is not likely to help them. Right. Uh, and so they, they, they get, they, it, it's a terrible situation for, and one of my, my roles as medical director, when I, I, I developed this program called an early intervention program where within two weeks after an injury, we are able to identify people that were at high risk due to ACE and provide them with additional services and, and training. Um, that's that, that that was i believe the first program of its kind in the united states um now there was a, something similar in canada um developed by a guy named michael sullivan a psychologist but it really didn't work intimately with the doctors and i was i did i i made sure that if something wasn't going the way I thought it ought to be going and uh, and wasn't consistent with the guidelines in California, I would get the doc on the phone and have a conversation about about that and ask them, and I spoke with many hundreds of doctors, uh, about their knowledge of the consequences of adverse childhood experience. And What's virtually happened? all of them virtually all of them had no knowledge of what I was talking about. Right. Well, I mean, here's the deal. I mean, what's happening in medicine is that there's a paper in a Baltimore published in 2014 that only 10% of orthopedic spine surgeons and neurosurgical spine surgeons are acknowledging the known risk factors for poor outcomes. And they include younger age, um, multiple diffuse symptoms, history of abuse, um, anxiety, depression, catastrophizing, lack of sleep, lack of exercise, nutrition, sure. all these pretend poor outcomes. Only 10% of surgeons are actually acknowledging and addressing those variables before they do surgery. They're often making the surgical decision on the first visit without even knowing the patient. Also, the outcome, there's not actually not one research paper, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mel, I don't know of one research paper that documents that a back fusion works for back pain compared to a good non-operative care program. Are you aware of a paper that shows that? No, I'm, I'm actually not. It's, right. it's curious as hell, but I, I'm actually not. Right. So this one elf in the room is over $10 billion a year industry just with spine surgery for back pain. And on top of that, we actually know disc degeneration, which is the most common reason to perform back surgery for back pain, has been clearly demonstrated not to be a source of pain. We're literally pretending to do medicine. It's unbelievable. And of course, there's lots of downside risks. I want to talk about the ACE scores just for a second as an example of extremely well-documented data. It's not subtle. It's the most black and white data I've ever seen in medicine. That if you, if you have grown up in an environment with a lot of stress, that you don't do as well in life later on. And when you're injured, you don't cope as well. Your pain's worse. Your body chemistry is off. You just don't do well. Yet the biggest factor right now that's become incredibly disturbing, I'm going, to, I'm going to give Mel some homework here today, is to try to put into words how disturbing this trend is, is that the one factor that actually does work, this is talked to me by several of my pain specialists, is actually talking to the patient, find out what's going on. And we're actually having that actively taken away from us. 
they were actively being pushed to do procedures that actually had been documented to not work. And I'd just like to have you, Mel, describe in your own words how bad the situation really is. Uh, uh, in, 30, in my entire profession, it's only gotten worse. Right. My, my entire professional life, it's as bad as it's, it's worse than it's ever been. And, it's, and what's most disturbing about it is that I think the a lot of the businesses that provide hardware and surgical instrumentation and various devices and you know they're, they're they have in a way many of them and this is also true of big pharma too they they co-opted medical education and the doctor now is nothing more than a highly educated um, processor of a paper pusher and because the traditional medical education in America was one that focused almost exclusively on the biomedical model um, everything in the in, in most physicians' minds is a mechanical causal relationship type thing, you know, of the biomedical model. When in fact, the truth is, and everybody knows this in China and other places where medicine is practiced in a different way, is that the, the, it's the biopsychosocial model that is the most encompassing and most helpful uh, in terms of creating a therapeutic process, an effective therapeutic process for anyone with any problem, essentially. I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm not saying for one moment that things can, can be avoided. I mean, cancer is cancer, and you know, the treatments available are the treatments available. But, but different people do do better even in, with cancer treatment if they have a more healthful past and a better attitude. Right. And so, so, um, it's, it's a, it's a very difficult problem. And as, as I said, I think it's only getting worse because the profits from devices are, it's just so huge for, as an example, I mean, who really needs a spinal stimulator? Who really needs a pump for opiates after or for spinal pathology? Right. Mm -hmm. well, I, I, mean, I, I think you could count all the people on one hand. Right. You know, I, I read a paper, an article that was incredibly disturbing in the New York Times. So they, what they do, they keep developing more and more sophisticated spinal cord stimulators. And I'm not saying that they never work, but they work about, the data shows they have a 50% chance of helping half the pain, which is not very good. And they're estimating that this market could be a $20 billion a year market in about but five years. And that, and that helping the pain doesn't, doesn't mean solve permanently. Correct. It doesn't solve, it's not a permanent fix. I mean, I, I, I think in 35 years, I saw one patient who actually kept his spinal cord stimulator for more than three years. Wow. 
everybody else rejected it. They didn't like the noise. They didn't like the vibrations. They didn't like, you know, it wasn't that effective. It was, it was, it was a problem. And that's also true for pumps. Right. I can, I'll just speak for spine surgery. I know this is also a problem in every other field, but in spine surgery, essentially every treatment we offer has been documented to be ineffective. We do facepalogs for back pain. We do rhizotomies for back pain. We do little anatomies for back pain, epidural injections for back pain, spine fusions for back pain. None of those have actually proven to be effective. We do random physical therapy, which has some effect, but again, that's not really combined often with sustained weight training and conditioning. Um, nutrition is a big deal. Sleep is a huge deal. And again, let's go back to the ACE scores again. I mean, there are dozens, I don't know, maybe hundreds of papers now documenting the effect of ACEs on patients' health. I mean, people die. They get physically sick. Oh, it's terrible. Right. And none of us have taught this in medical school. It is never once, even with my awareness of it, I mean, I, I deal with it myself and my patients, but I still have never seen any movement within the medical culture to say, okay, these age scores are a problem. How do we systematically deal with them? And there's such a basic problem, sorry, right in your childhood and carried right into your current moment. Nobody talks about them. And then, then again, the business of medicine has taken away our ability to actually listen to our patients. We actually don't know what's going on. It's not a lot of, and, and actually, believe it or not, once patients understand my experience, been once people understand, okay, yeah, I was programmed to be hyperactive, hypervigilant as a kid. I'm hyper, hypervigilant now. My body chemistry is way off. If you have sustained levels of stress chemicals, it's similar to driving your car down the freeway in second and third gear. It's going to break down. And that sustained, unpleasant chemical environment is a major, major issue. It's also more logical to think that your body chemistry is going to create or solve symptoms rather than a bone spur. It's not, again, that's where I'm fascinated and disturbed because I was impressed in medical school how much we did learn about the human body. But to me, this is stuff we actually learned in high school science class. When you're under stress, your body responds to the chemical response. But what we learned in medical school was stunning, the details, the histology, the pathology, the physiology. I mean, it's incredible what we learned about the human body. And this is so basic. Why do you think it hasn't penetrated into mainstream medical care? Well, again, I think in part it's for financial reasons. But I also think there's a certain amount of it's taboo. What do you mean it's taboo? It's, uh, it's taboo to discuss some of these things uh, with um, for and doctors are very uncomfortable talking to, to people about their early childhood experiences and whether they were sexually abused and by whom and you know all of these things. The, the average doctor is, was never exposed to this stuff in, in medical school, even when they were. So, trained to do a, a, a comprehensive review of systems, that was never part of it. Do you recall when you were a medical student learning about the review of systems? I do. Was there, ever any, there was never any mention in there about, well, have you ever been sexually abused? Have you ever been abandoned? Have you ever been, you know, neglected? You know, it's just not part of the traditional medical intake. Right. And part of that, it's not, it's not business, although business is clearly a problem, 
it's, it's also the fact that some of these things are considered not part of what doctors should be doing. I don't agree with that, but that's been sort of the traditional uh, perspective, that these are very personable, personal, intimate matters that, that are taboo to discuss. They, and they, and they, and they often, you know, if you say to doctors as I have many hundreds of times, well, that may be, but what if I told you that your patient's not getting better because of the way he was treated by, and I have all the details in my chart, so I know exactly what transpired and how they tested out, how they scored on various tests that are given on intake by the psychologist. And, and they generally just don't want to go there, even though the, I, I've made it very clear that it's likely that they're not, they're, their frustration over the patient's lack of progress and recovery is due more to psychosocial issues than a neuroanatomical issue. Right. These folks, you know, and, 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 but they don't, but a lot of docs don't want to hear it, number one. Number two, they don't know how to deal with it because they were never taught what the resources available might be to help address this. They're, they're frustrated. And even when I, ha I had doctors who were willing to make that effort, they would often call me very frustrated because they made requests for certain kinds of assessments and, 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 you know, psych support and all that stuff. And, uh, they were, they were refused. By the carriers. What is a, what is a spouse? Because the carriers, because the carriers are just as ignorant as not worrying them. Right. What's the cost of a spinal cord stimulator, this, this ballpark, do you know, by chance? You mean just to get it in? Just to get, you know, the trial one and then put the stimulator in and let's say the oh, one. Oh, I'm sure, I, I, I'm sure tens of thousands of dollars. I know it's between somewhere between fifty to $100,000. I mean, there's an awful lot of support that can, can be given. I mean, my, the lecture I gave back East last year was, look, essentially everything that we're paying for in medicine has been documented to be ineffective. And I'm just going to list a few treatments that are actually simply not covered by insurance. And it appears that services that are offered patients have nothing to do with whether the services are, are effective or not. It's simply whether they're paid for. It makes no sense. We know, for instance, which yeah. No, I, 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 this is another, I mean, it's such a multi-layered, complicated situation. But right. you're, you're absolutely right about that. Right. I mean, there are things that work. We know that John uh, Zabazan in Boston has this mindfulness-based stress reduction. It's called ACT or acceptance commitment therapy. There's third wave CBT. We know that yeah, ACT is excellent. It's, yeah, it's all it's all sort of in the same bag. But yeah, you know, it's it's getting more sophisticated, but more but but not that many people access it. Yeah, it works. Treaters I mean, don't access it. The problem is, in my frustration over the years, is that I did understand this many years ago, as this audience knows, I was in chronic pain myself, I came out of it by accident. But when I tried to get my patients access to the services, that know, the services that I know will help them, they're not paid for. And when you're in disability, you don't have a lot of money. It's a big problem. Mel, were you able to, were you able to get your well, company to cover some of those services? Well, let me, well, again, 
I, I was involved in cases around the country, but my, most of my experience was in California because Safeway wasn't purely California, but, but that's where we had this medical provider network, which we could control. We could identify treaters, put them in it, and exclude other treaters. So we had a modicum of control. And there, and we also have treatment guidelines in the state. So example, if someone wants to do a, a, in California, if someone wants to put in a stimulator now, that, that individual has to be screened psychologically. And if they are not appropriate in the, in the sense that they're completely unrealistic about what the, you know, the basic potential uh, consequences are of having it placed, or if there are other obvious psychological issues, for example, they wouldn't take care of it. They wouldn't take care of the site. They would, you know, they weren't trustworthy enough to to uh, keep a pump filled or whatever whatever it might be. Um, then then those people could be denied that procedure. So so there was a. So in California, this is just an one example. There was a there, there was an effort, and I sat on the medical evidence evaluation advisory committee for the state of California Department of Workers Comp for ten or twelve years, and worked on a lot of this stuff. But most states don't do that. They don't provide, or they don't uh, the, the doctors or the lawyers or are are more influential with the politicians, and they are they're able to take a different approach. And in, in those states, and I can name them, but I won't. The uh, the amount of unnecessary uh, interventions is just mind blowing. It's all it was always bad in California until the MPNs came into existence. That's now been modified and reduced to a significant degree. There was a time in 2000, I think it was a 2012, no, not, no, I'm sorry, not 2012, early 2000 study by the uh, uh, Work Comp Institute of California that basically said one in eight spinal fusions that at that time were clinically indicated. One in eight were indicated, so seven out of eight were not indicated. Right. Wow. And of course, a significant number of those that were indicated probably shouldn't have been done anyway. Right. Well, let, let me just say this really clear, and I appreciate your time again, this this podcast, but we're both trying to say as as we can, right now, as a patient, procedures generally aren't helpful. There's a lot of zero to low risk things you can do on your own that are extremely helpful. And I actually quit my spine surgery practice to try to get this message out in a broader way because we're really hurting our society very efficiently with the ability to provide procedures at a very high rate that don't work. The problem with spine surgery in particular, not only does it not work, it actually causes damage to the spine. And the thing you can take this beautiful, beautiful layers of muscles and skin and ligaments and tissues and turn, it, turn those into a massive scar tissue and steel rods and bone I think that's a better way to be. It's just insane. But things are really dark. We have, between the two of us, we have hundreds 
and hundreds of disaster stories beyond words. And we're not going to tell those on the air because of confidentiality issues, but these are really bad stories. I'm actually writing a book right now. It'll be published in the fall called, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? Take Control with a Surgeon's Advice. And it really takes all these issues that we talked about, about the stress, the anatomy, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a tremendous amount of surgery being done on completely normal spines. Dead normal. It's unbelievable. Oh, I know. I yeah. know, I know that to be normal. true. So the downside of a spine surgery is high. And even just having more and more ongoing pain and disappointment, that's not your body chemistry and nervous system. And Mel has seen it even more clearly than I have. And I've seen enough. I just can't put into words how dangerous the situation is for the average consumer that does not really know how to make those surgical decisions. But it's a huge, huge problem. And I'm not sure exactly what it's going to take to turn this around. Um, any final thoughts, Mel? Well, I have a thought, but I, I, I'm a little, I'm a little reluctant to mention it, but I'm going to do it anyway. And that is, this mess is not just in spinal care. Right. Uh, there, there's a recent article written about dentistry in the Atlantic. I don't know if you read it, but how, how. A large percentage of dental procedures are totally unindicated and needless. Really? They're done anyway for, for pure profit. Wow. And they they busted a guy big time. Uh, but but um, but you know you can see that you know the problems in dentistry are in someone's mouth, and 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 so you really are forced to to believe. What you're told, right? You're really forced, you're forced to believe that the dentist read his X-rays properly. Uh, you know, I, 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 I'm just saying. What I'm trying to say is that this is a human problem. That's a huge, and not just. I'm not just talking about the people that are suffering. I'm talking about the people that are supposed to be helping them. Correct. You know, overcome no, know. their suffering. Yeah. And it, it, that's also a human problem. Yep, and I agree. That greed and avarice and and a uh, unbelievable disregard for 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 others. Right. I don't know how else to put it. It's just outrageous. Well, and there are many many physicians who are extremely upset about this because the problem that we have in medicine right now is that people trust us, and you know the trouble is you know a high percent of physicians are very trustworthy. But also a very high percent are completely completely untrustworthy. The problem is, is as a consumer, you don't know who's who. How do you know who how to do no, it? Right? It's almost impossible to make that determination beforehand. Right. So that's what makes it particularly, I use the word abusive, to you as the patient because you trust your doctor to do the right thing. And there's a significant percent of the time they simply are not doing the right thing. Just they are not doing that. Anyway, but I appreciate your perspective. Um, I knew this would be a sobering conversation before I watch on the air. I feel the same way you do, but your perspective is extraordinarily helpful, and I re really appreciate your time today. Thank you. My pleasure, David. Take care. Well, thank you, uh, uh, David and Mel, for a very stimulating and enlightening conversation. And I want to remind our viewers that we'll be back next week with another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And be sure to visit backincontrol.com for more information.
Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.